Uh, we left off two weeks ago on verse 9 through 12. I'm kind of battling a little bug here, so if my voice goes out, um, bear with me. We're studying um, the gospel of God, God's sovereignty, and how it is the power for us to suffer in Christ, endure through suffering. We have found in verse 8, Paul gives a threefold command to his son of the faith. He tells him, do not be ashamed of the gospel. First command. Second command is, do not be ashamed of me, Christ's prisoner. The third command was, join with me in suffering for the gospel of God. Share in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God. It is a very difficult for a leader to do. It's one thing for a man to suffer himself. Whole another um, mark of faith. True commitment to Christ. To call a beloved one to suffer alongside of him. That is what Paul does with Timothy. He calls him to suffer. And he highlights for him immediately the truths that will uh, motivate him to suffer for Christ. Truths that will sustain and enable him to endure through suffering hardships for Jesus Christ. Before we get into the study, uh, let me take you to Calvary real briefly. And it looks like a very insignificant event. But it's important for our study this morning. Um, during our Lord's earthly ministry on the earth for about 33 years, he ministered for about three and a half years. The Bible tells us that he was fully God and he was also fully human. Uh, he was not pretending to be sleeping. He was not acting like he was hungry. He wasn't finding um, pain when he was being whipped and scourged, punched, slapped, kind of thorns on his head and crucified. The pain that he endured was very real. We get a false sense of that. We minimize the humanity of Christ in our desire to elevate his divinity. Uh, You know, the comic book, superhero, superman, you know, he was acting like Clark Kent. Clark Kent wasn't real. You know, he just wore glasses and everybody thought he was Clark Kent and took him off and he was Superman. But those glasses weren't real glasses because he had, I don't know, better than 20-20 vision. He could had x-ray vision, right? So he needed to see, use glasses. He was acting like Clark Kent. He was always Superman. Well, not Christ. He was fully God and he was fully human. His pain was real. When he was crying in Gethsemane, and sweat poured like drops of blood. Um, that was, he was sincere. It was genuine. His heart was breaking within him. Um, the insignificant event that we can overlook is when they brought him to Golgotha, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. Now, if you're a student of the Gospels, you'll note that he was offered a drink twice. The first time was when he was being crucified, when the nails were 
about to be thrust into his hands and his feet. The second time was when he was, his life was ebbing away and a man got a sponge, dunked it in sour wine and, and gave it to him on, on a, a long stick. That drink our Lord took. But the first drink, wine mixed with gall, he did not take it. He tasted it, realized it was mixed with this narcotic, and he spat it out. The effect of this gall would be to stupefy him, uh, cause him to be dazed, numb him from the shock of having his hands and his feet crucified. This was normal measure taken to the victims of the crucifixion. It was more for the soldiers rather than for the victims. They didn't want to have to deal with a man just writhing and out of control. They numbed him, kind of stupefied him, so that they can crucify him with the least bit of labor on their part. Our Lord refused this narcotic that would have numbed this pain. Now, why? Now, I'm not interpreting the, the letters here, the words, the grammar. I'm kind of interpreting the white parts. So, take it, if you will, in light of that. But I believe it's because the most important um, instrument to fight temptations while we're suffering is our minds. Having a clear mind, having clear thoughts, having clear mental apprehension is, is key to stand up against suffering, under suffering, and during temptation. Right? When we're suffering, going through hardship, trials, and pain, Anxiety, fear, doubt. Temptations, all these things come raging at us from without and from within. How do we fight these things? It is with our minds. It is with truth embedded in in our minds. And it's with the mind that we apprehend the Word of God And we stand against temptation. We stand against our fears. Stand against our anxieties. That is what spiritual warfare is. It's not some miraculous power encounter, but it's battle for the mind between truth and error. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are these weapons? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what, that's how Paul describes spiritual warfare. All these thoughts that are bombarding him from the world, all these false thoughts that are rising from sin in his flesh, he uses the divine power, the word of God, to take these thoughts captive and demolish them, destroy them, and make them obey Christ. The battle is internal. The battle is fixed. The arena is the mind. Ephesians 6 12 through 18. Paul said there, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's talking about spiritual warfare. And he tells us, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And he describes this armor, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Every single piece of this equipment is doctrinal. It's, it's ideas, it's truth, fighting error. That is what Christ did. That is what Paul exhorted believers to do. And that is what Christ exhorted disciples on the eve of his death. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray. He's telling them, you're going to stumble because of the things that will happen to me. You'll be horrified. You thought I was the Messiah, the promised king of Israel, who will dethrone the powers of Rome and establish the earthly kingdom promised by the Old Testament prophets, and you'll see me hanging naked on the cross, and your hearts will be filled with horror. Therefore, be alert. Have your minds be clear. Minds be sharp. That is what um, we are to do as believers. Right. When non-believers, non-Christians endure suffering, pain, disappointment in life, they drown their sorrows with alcohol. They drown it with entertainment, drugs, or sex, or money, or shopping, or friends. For Christians, we drown our sorrows in the gospel of God, in the truth of God's word. In the glorious gospel of Christ, we fix our minds because the gospel is what will enable us to enter into the fight and withstand suffering. And it is the gospel that will give us power to endure. That is why as soon as Paul talked to Timothy about suffering for the gospel by the power of God, he immediately launches into the gospel. He highlights to us ten grand truths about the gospel. Not a simplistic gospel, the reduced gospel, the truncated gospel we hear so often today. Jesus died for you. No, the gospel is so much more beautiful, so much more glorious, um, so much more affected with power than that simplistic understanding of the gospel. In verses 9 through 12, we find 10 glorious truths of the gospel. We studied three two weeks ago. The first answers the question, what? What did God do? What did our sovereign God accomplish according to the gospel? Paul tells us, he saved us. Who saved, verse 9, who saved us? God's absolute sovereignty in salvation. This is the only real point to be made in our study of salvation. It's the teriology. It's the fact that 
God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons work together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve what man could not achieve, our salvation. God saved us. Past tense truth. It has been accomplished. God did everything. First to last, involved in bringing man from death. He planned it out. He achieved it. He communicated it. And he has kept it secure for Christians. God saved us. Sinners. Even though we were guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, Unable to lift a finger to do God's will, He saved us. Simple truth. It's so powerful. We didn't cooperate with God. It was not a joint enterprise. We didn't do anything to elicit God's work of salvation. This is why we ought to suffer for Christ and suffer for the gospel because what He did for us. Who saved us? What did he save us from? From his own wrath. Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. Men do not know that God is angry with them. You know, there's that popular tract that's been around for many years. I mean, 20 plus years. And the starting point of the tract is, God has a wonderful plan for your life. The whole starting point is erroneous. If you're not a Christian, God doesn't have a wonderful plan for your life. God has an awful plan for your life. God is waiting for you at the end of your life. And you won't find open arms. You'll find God in His unbridled wrath. You'll find God full of anger full of animosity, full of condemnation, ready to judge. Ready to judge you because of your sins. Your sins have provoked this holy God and you are helpless to appease Him. So the right starting point of the gospel is God's wrath, not this wonderful plan if you would just cooperate with God. Paul says, God saved us from his holy wrath, from his judgment, from his condemnation. That is, that is what ought to motivate believers to suffer for Christ. We've got our Mexico team leaving tomorrow, right? Suffering for Christ for a whole week, right? No running water, right? No electricity, mosquitoes, triple-digit weather, I think, in Mexico right now. And Why? Why do that during the summer? That's right here because he, he saved us. He saved me. Right? He saved me from his wrath. So am I going to not suffer for Christ? Am I going to consider it as an option? Should I suffer or should I forego suffering? Should I take uh, this road rather than um, the, the road of suffering? When you want to quit, when you want to give up, what sustains our hearts? The midst of suffering, the first glorious truth is that in God's absolute sovereignty, He has accomplished this for you, He has accomplished this for me, our salvation. Second truth 
is that God in his absolute sovereignty, he called us to a holy calling. He called us to a holy calling. Now, he's not talking here about the universal call of the gospel. Where we go and preach the gospel to people, and by our proclamation of the gospel, God is calling them to salvation. That there is a general call of the gospel. But what, what Paul is talking about here, anytime calling is used in connection with the gospel, the Bible is talking about the internal calling of God, the calling of the Holy Spirit, the efficacious, the powerful, potent, um, conclusive call of God, which cannot be resisted. To kind of give you guys up to speed, I'll share a little story, and then you guys can catch up afterwards. Um, game one of the Western Conference Finals. Right, Lakers against San Antonio Spurs. It was like a Wednesday morning. Woke up, you know, studying, doing my thing at home. And a brother from church calls me. I'm like, you know, he's never called me before, right? So I'm thinking, oh, okay, you know, his girlfriend broke up with him, right? Or he needs counseling about how to, like, you know, I don't know, pursue her. Or, that's my first thought. So what's going on, brother? And he says, James, I got an extra ticket to tonight's game, Western Conference Finals, lower level. Right. My whole day, like, shifted before my eyes. Right? You know, before it was like a normal day, you know, at home studying and spending time with my family. And then with that one, you know, call, my whole day changed. <laughs> so... For the next several weeks, every time the Lakers were playing at home and the phone rang, I was like, don't touch the phone, I'm going to get it. (laughs) Who is this? Oh, man, just you. All right. right. Waiting for that brother to call again. Anyway, I went, glorious game. They were down by 20. Third quarter, they came back to win. But when he called me, I had a choice. I could have said, yes, I will go. Or I could have said, you know what? I'm going to stay home and spend time with my wife, right? I'm going to stay home and read Christian books, right? I'm going to stay home and, you know, watch it on TV instead, right? I had a choice. That's not what Paul is talking about here, calling. He didn't call, God didn't call us and give us an option. He called us to himself. And the, to me, the best Bible illustration of this is uh, John 11, with Lazarus. When you want to understand this calling, when you want to explain this calling to others, let's go to John 11. Here is Lazarus. He's been dead for four days. He's been dead. His, his, his body is rotting. All his organs have stopped working for four days. He's covered in grave, you know, burial clothes. There is no life in him at all. It's not four minutes, not four hours. Four days. He has no life at all. And Christ goes to the gravesite. And what did he say? He said, Lazarus, come out. Now, Lord, Lazarus can't hear you. Right? His ears aren't working. Right? He has no brain. Right? He doesn't have the faculties to understand what you're comprehending, what you're saying. But the, though the Lord called out to him, 
vocally Lazarus come out, what happened was the Holy Spirit called him internally and spiritually. And Lazarus had no choice. He couldn't say, oh man, why are you calling me? I'm with God right now. I don't want to go back to earth. Right? I don't want to. Right? Wouldn't you be bummed? Like, leave me alone. I'm in a happy place. Right? I'm doing okay over here. Right? Call somebody else. Another dead guy. Right? You know his name. You call him. I'd rather be with God. He had no choice in the matter. He was dead. Christ called him. He came walking out alive again. Not resurrection because Lazarus would die again. Right? Christ, resurrection is your glorified body. You live forever. That's Christ. That's us when we're with the Lord. He was, lack of a better word, resuscitated. Right? After death, brought back to life, he would die again. Well, that's what God did to us through the gospel. There was a time in our lives we thought we were spiritually alive. Somebody somehow proclaimed the gospel to us. We heard the gospel and we responded to it and we were saved. And then yet we study the Bible and realize I didn't choose God. I didn't decide to follow Christ. Yes, when we're all saved, we're Arminians when we're the day of our salvation. But through study of Scripture, we all become Calvinists. You have to become a Calvinist. Because Calvinism is biblical. It's scriptural. It's a nickname for biblical Christianity, as Spurgeon said. We didn't have a choice. Though we thought we were spiritually alive and had a choice, the Bible tells us no. Ephesians 2, 1, we were dead in our trespasses. Just like Lazarus, we were dead. And yet, through the outward call of the gospel, the Holy Spirit called us and He regenerated us. He gave us life. He caused us to be born again spiritually. Physically, we were born once. Born again spiritually this time through the gospel of Christ. And it was called us to a holy calling. That's what happened. So again, that's why Christians suffer for Christ. Right? That's why Christians endure in suffering for Christ, because we know we don't have a choice in that matter. Right? It is not up to us. Right? Everyone who seeks to live a uh, godly life will endure suffering, will be persecuted. Right? That's why Paul often called himself a prisoner of the Lord. A prisoner of the Lord. Right. He knew he had no choice. Later on, we t- he talks about this. He was appointed. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Christians understand. We didn't choose. He chose. Right. And we have really no say in the matter. Right. We have no say in the matter. The third truth is that God in His absolute sovereignty saved us not by our works, but by grace alone. So first of all, He tells us why not. God didn't save us not because of works. It's not because of any uh, merit on our part. I got a phone call recently from a brother from another church and he had this like important question and um, 
No, that's not important, but I asked him what he did for a living, and he's a bankruptcy lawyer. And I, I told him, wow, you must be very busy right now. He said, yeah, man, business has never been better, right? He was filing for bankruptcy left and right. And so I did some research on bankruptcy this, this past week and found out there's two kinds of bankruptcy, Chapter 7 bankruptcy and Chapter 11. I want to make sure I get it right. right? Chapter 11 bankruptcy for companies deals with what we call a temporary bankruptcy. This option is chosen by a company that could, if given time, they could work out its financial problems and get back on its feet. They just need time from their debtors to stop uh, hassling them and charging them exorbitant interest and they can get their act together. Mervyn's just filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, three days ago, right? Uh, I think Huey was telling me how um, these companies w- w- weren't selling them um, back-to-school merchandise because they knew they were close to going into bankruptcy, and they didn't want to have their merchandise taken from them without getting paid. They filed for a temporary bankruptcy. Chapter 7 is for a company that has reached the end of its financial rope. It is not only deeply in debt, it has no future as a viable business. This company that files for Chapter 7 bankruptcy is forced to liquidate all its assets and pay off its creditors. The company is finished. It is all over. Uh, IndyMac Bank filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy a few weeks ago. When God found us, it was chapter 7 bankruptcy. We were spiritually bankrupt. There was nothing we can do to get out of this predicament. There was no work, no labor, no ritual, no religious deed that we could do to earn God's salvation. We were permanently spiritually bankrupt. Bankrupt, chapter 7. And yet, most of us live as if we file for chapter 11, spiritual bankruptcy. Though theologically we believe that we were totally bankrupt, practically, in the outworkings of of our lives, we live like we filed for temporary bankruptcy and we try to liquidate our assets and pay God back and somehow earn favor for salvation and or for our sanctification. Jerry Bridges wrote this in his book, Transforming Grace. Having trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, we have subtly and unconsciously reverted to our works relationship with God in our Christian lives. We recognize that even our best efforts cannot get us to heaven, but we think that we can earn God's blessings by our obedience in our daily lives. After we become Christians, we begin to put away our more obvious sins. We start attending church, give offering, join a small group Bible study. We see some positive changes in our lifestyle. We begin to feel pretty good about ourselves. We think we're now ready to emerge from this bankruptcy and pay our own way in the Christian life. Then the day comes when we fall on our face spiritually. We lapse back into an old sin or we fail to do what we should have done. 
because we think we are now on our own, paying our own way, we assume we have forfeited all blessings from God for some undetermined period of time. Our expectation of God's blessing depends on how well we feel we are living the Christian life. We, we were saved by grace, but we are living by performance. And he says this, If you think I am overstating this case, try this test. Think of a time recently when you really fell on your face spiritually. Think of a time, someone in your family, maybe at work, you're all by yourself, and you totally blew it as a Christian. Then imagine that immediately afterwards, you encountered a terrific opportunity to share Christ with a non-Christian friend. Could you have done it with complete confidence and God's help? Could you? He concludes, we are all legalistic by nature. That is, we innately think that performance earns blessings from God. One of the best kept secrets among the Christians today is this. Jesus paid it all. And I mean all. He not only purchased your forgiveness of sins and your ticket to heaven, He purchased every blessing and every prayer you will ever receive. That is what the third truth tells us. We were not saved by works. It is in vain that we try to earn salvation by works. It is also vain to continue to live our lives as Christians by works as well. We are saved by grace, and we also live by grace. We live like God paid our debt. Now we start with a blank slate. And if we sin, we have to pay God back for all the debt that we accumulate by our failings as Christians. And so we are back in debt again. And we think that we need to pay God back through, through our deeds. That is not grace. Right? That is not grace. The grace of God is this. He saved us not because of works, but because of his purpose and grace. And this grace means that God has forgiven us of all our past sins, all our present sins, and all our future sins. We can never um, go back into debt. We can never be debtors to sin again or to God's law or to God's justice. By the gospel of Christ, we have been set free. I remember, you know, one of my first cars that I bought was my Nissan Altima, 19, uh, was it 92 or 91? I bought that car. I finally paid that off after six years, right? And one of the final, like, stubs, I, I, you know, tore it up, and I was so happy to be out of debt. And, you know, for those of us who have mortgages, I can't wait 27 years from now. <laughs> When I get that final bill, and they have those mortgage-burning parties, 
But what I found out is very important. You don't burn the mortgage. You burn the copy of the mortgage, right? If you burn the mortgage, there's no proof or that you own the home or one of the proofs, right? So you make a copy and you burn that, right? And you celebrate together. No more debt. Some of, some of you, maybe very few of you understand what that's like, feel, know what that feels like. That make no more car payments. No more mortgage payments. No more credit card payments, right? And once you're freed from debt, you don't want to buy a new car. You don't want to buy another house. You don't want to charge anything because it feels so good to be free and you hate making those payments again. Well, as Christians, we feel like, oh, I sinned. Now I got to pay this debt. Oh, man, I blew it again. And my debt is accumulating. And we feel um, loaded down with guilt, shame, burden of sin. It's not by our works we've been saved. It's not by our works that we continue as Christians. It is by grace. That means uh, we can never have debt. No, and this is not a license to sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. Subject for another sermon. But where sin abounds, grace superabounds. We can never incur so much debt where grace runs out. God's mercy or forgiveness runs out. It has been wiped clean. Third reason why Christians jump at the opportunity to suffer for the gospel. Third reason why Christians, when we're suffering, we, with our clear minds, think of the gospel. We remember God's sovereign grace. And remember the grace that was poured out to us on the cross. We don't drown our sorrows in alcohol. We drown our sorrows in the gospel of Christ. And remembering this grace that was poured out for us once for all, we endure through suffering. Somewhat, somewhat lengthy, but it's a quote by Martin Luther that's helpful for us. Luther wrote, Many Christians are tired of hearing this teaching over and over. They think that they learned it all long ago. However, they barely understand how important it really is. If it continues to be taught as truth, the Christian church will remain united and pure, free from decay. This truth about salvation by grace alone makes and sustains Christianity. You might hear an immature Christian brag about how well he knows that we receive God's approval through God's kindness and not because of anything we do to earn it. But if he goes on to say that this is easy to put into practice, then have no doubt he doesn't know what he's talking about. And he probably never will. We can never learn this truth completely or brag that we understand it fully. Learning this truth is an art that takes a lifetime. We will always remain students of it, and it will always be our teacher. The people who truly understand that they receive God's approval by faith and put this into practice 
don't brag that they have fully mastered it. Rather, they think of it as a pleasant taste or aroma that they are always pursuing. These people are astonished that they can't comprehend it as fully as they would like. They hunger for it. They thirst for it. They yearn for it more and more. They never get tired about this truth. The purpose is not founded on the foreseen merit, but upon grace alone it is grace. This doctrine not only gives the man something to hold, but it holds the man. Let a man once have burnt into him that salvation is of God and not of man, and that God's grace is to be glorified and not human merit, and you will never get that belief out of him. It is the rarest thing in all the world to hear of such a man ever going away from the faith. Other doctrine is slippery ground. But this is like a granite step upon the eternal pyramid of truth stands. Get your feet on this and there is no fear of slipping so as far as doctrinal standing is concerned. If we would have our churches in England well instructed and holding fast to this truth, we will stand with Christ till His return. Oh, may the Holy Spirit write it on our hearts. Because we are such legalists by nature, the challenge is appropriating this doctrine of grace and practicing it and living it out. That is the truth that sustains believers till His return. Now notice there in verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of grace. And then also, but because of His own purpose. Because of His own purpose. This is the fourth truth about the gospel. That God in His absolute sovereignty saved us for Himself, for His own glory. This is um, shocking truth. This is amazing. This, um, this ought to squeeze out every last ounce of Arminianism that's left in our hearts. That God saved us not because of us, but God saved us according to His own purpose. What is the ultimate end, ultimate purpose of God? There are three options. God exists, and He saved us because He loved us, John 3.16. Or God saved us to show His love for the elect, Romans 5.8. Or, God saved us, and we are not the end. We are a means to His own glory. God saved us for His own glory. Philippians 2, 6-11 talks about the incarnation of Christ, His humiliation, His suffering, His death. At the end of verse 11, tells us the ultimate purpose, the ultimate reason for His Suffering, humiliation, and his death. 
to the glory of God the Father. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Revelation 4.11 You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. In fact, God has done all things for His own glory. God created the heavens and the earth for His own glory. Genesis 1. Exodus 7.5 tells us that God delivered Israel from Egypt for His own name's sake. God redeemed Israel from their Babylonian captivity. Isaiah 48.9 God said, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For my own sake, my own name's sake, I have done this. I will not yield my glory to another. And now our salvation. Salvation of the elect. 1 Timothy 1, 14 through 17. Here we see the gospel in miniature intermingled with Paul's testimony. 1 Timothy 1, 14 through 17. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a true, trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. And then verse 17. Why? Why did God do this? Why did God show patience to Paul to display his unlimited patience? Ultimately, why did God show mercy to Paul and to all believers? To the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Jonathan Edwards said this, It appears that all that is ever spoken of in the scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. Here is the whole purpose of all that God does. It is for His own glory. So we find in the scriptures, yes, it's true. God loves the world. He gave His Son, John 3.16. Yes, it's true. Romans 5.8, God loves the elect. But those are all subordinate ends. They are second to His commitment to His own glory. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. And we'll read some passages there. That reveal to us God's ultimate purpose for our salvation. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. 
Look at verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Go down to verse 11. In Him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. God elected us, God adopted us, God justified us, also that His glory might be praised. Verse 13 and 14. Talk to the Gentiles. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possession. And again, that phrase, to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. Why God saved us is so important. It reveals His motivation. That He exists not for us, but for Himself. He is not an idolater. He doesn't worship us. He worships himself. He obeys the first commandment. You shall have no other gods above me. I am to be your first love with all your heart, soul, and mind. He commands his people, for he himself upholds that in integrity by doing all things for his own honor. His own namesake, His own glory reveals to us He doesn't exist for us. We exist for Him. And our salvation is merely a vehicle for God to be glorified. For God's grace to be displayed. That the world might know what a merciful, merciful God our God is as He displays this forgiveness to sinners as us, who are completely spiritually bankrupt, undeserving of such gifts. If we were the end, if God's ultimate purpose was our salvation, then our sufferings would not make sense. We would have... um, Our theology, there'll be a disconnect. There'll be a corruption in our, uh, the hard drive of our minds. It would confuse us. If God did all these things and God gave His Son for me, why am I now suffering in Christ and for Christ? It would cause us to fall away. But rightly understanding this, that God saved us, not to, that we would be happy. God saved us, that He would have pleasure over His grace. Helps us to understand our place in the world, our place in our relationship with Him. Therefore, it compels us to suffer for Christ, because that causes Him to rejoice. This truth causes us to endure in our sufferings for Christ. 
because it enables us to understand that our suffering brings glory to God. In closing, just two thoughts. Are you still trying to uh, pay back your debts as a Christian? Do you see your salvation as being saved from permanent bankruptcy? Are you living your life in the mindset of temporary bankruptcy? You can't wait to get your feet back on the ground and you're going to start living the Christian life and pay God back. And you'll be righteous on your own. And you'll pay the debts that you incur by your sins. Or are you fighting legalism of the heart? Understanding that God saved us once for all. That there is no debt to repay. Right? There is no payments to be made. There are no bills to pay. That on the cross, God paid it all for our salvation and for the rest. Until the day of Christ, or until the day of our death, all debts have been paid. We are living in the the age of grace where it's been poured out to us. So in light of that, we live our lives. What is your outlook on the Christian life? A key barometer that that reveals the legalists in your heart is the amount of joy you have in your heart. If there is a lack of joy as a Christian, um, a, a vital reason could be due to legalism. Though you are saved by grace, you have gone back to the law, you've gone back to the ensnaring bondage of obedience as a basis for your justification. You're trying to uh, make your payments and stand in a righteous position by obedience rather than by the cross of Christ. Are you lacking joy as a Christian? Secondly, do you see God's purpose in your sufferings today? Whether in Christ or for Christ, the sufferings that you are going through, is there grumbling in your heart, anxiety, fear, discontentment? Is there rage? Is there anger? Is there a pity party going on? You know, you're just feeling sorry for yourself. Right. And you're angry at God. God, you know, I'm the reason why you exist. How can you let this happen to me? How can you allow me to go through this? How can that person talk to me that way or treat me this way? Or how can we go through this horrible trial? That reveals our understanding of the gospel is inconsistent with the Bible. Is your view of the gospel biblical? You understand that God doesn't exist for us, that we exist for Him, and we exist our salvation in our lives to display God's glory, to, to praise His grace, to extol His unlimited patience with us. So what our hearts cry out in the midst of suffering with that pr- mindset is wholly different. We understand that the purpose of our suffering is for Him to be glorified. 
um, the things that proceed out of our mouths and our attitude, it's completely different, right? As Christians, we suffer. And what, what did Christ do? He did not threaten. He did not retaliate. He, didn't, he could have called down the angels to destroy all his enemies. He could have made threats. Man, a few more hours, right? I'm going to come back and demolish you guys. He didn't rebel against God's will. In Gethsemane, he asked in prayer three times, is there another way? When the Father said, no, this is the only way for my name to be glorified. Our Lord said three times, not my will, but your will be done. He didn't fight against God. He didn't rebel against God. He said, with joy, I submit to your perfect will. In your suffering, we understand rightly the purpose of God. And our pur- the purpose of our salvation, it radically changes how we suffer and how we endure in suffering. Let's close in prayer. I'm going to give you a few moments to consider. I I know some of you are going through difficulties. You're suffering for Christ, and many more are suffering in Christ. May the Holy Spirit of the Word of God gently, carefully, tenderly spiritual surgery in your hearts, my heart as well, and cause us to rightly see the purpose of our salvation and rightly see the purpose of our sufferings and cause us to, when we see ourselves at the weakest time, we think we're so weak, Help us to see it is our time, our opportunity to glorify Christ. We can glorify God today by how we respond to our trials in light of God's sovereign grace given to us in the gospel. Father, you are truly um, the good physician. You know our true and uh, lasting need. It is not the things that we pray for. What we truly need is the gospel. We truly need to have a right, clear mental apprehension of this beautiful and glorious message of your Son, Jesus Christ. And to live in light of it always. To live in the shadow of the cross every day. To live in light of grace poured out to us once and for all, all our sins being forgiven, revealed to us that you exist and do all things for your own glory. And so for us, That is the purpose of our lives and the purpose of our sufferings. Lord, we pray 
that this this tree of Calvary would its roots would grow deep into our hearts and take a hold of us and cause us, Lord, to walk and live in a manner worthy of Christ. We thank you for your wonderful grace given to us undeservedly. May we uh, live worthy of it by trusting in you, by depending upon the grace of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.